I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley, and our entertainment options were, in a word, limited, especially compared to today. But a fascinating glimpse of what the future could possibly look like came one summer when my cousin Jason came to visit for a week, because along with him came a VCR, the first I had ever seen. It was a big heavy beast of a machine, and took what seemed to be oversized cassette tapes, which I would learn later was probably a Sony U-Matic. I couldn't really wrap my head around what such a device could do, but I was told it could play movies, in your home, independent of a TV broadcast. You could watch movies anytime you wanted. Well, where are the movies, I wondered. Let me at them. But only two movies came along with my cousin and this machine. Mary Poppins and the late 1970s remake of The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond. And yes, true to the original, he does appear in blackface. We watched those two movies daily, sometimes more than once, for the duration of the visit. Then my dad and I drove to the nearest city and found a store that rented movies, and we picked up a bunch, including Apocalypse Now, which had just been in theaters the previous year. This seemed monumental. But then my cousin went home, and the Umatic with him, and it would be a few years before my parents bought a VHS machine. And a few places in town, the TV shop and the convenience store down on the highway, began renting tapes. And I could start seeing films like the Maltese Falcon, or actors like Gregory Peck, or directors like Alfred Hitchcock I had always heard about or read about, but never got to see on TV. This was a watershed moment and changed how I could access film. And that's a pretty important factor when you love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 13. The scariest of all episodes. Well, the scariest of all numbers, at least. No, you would know. I do know. Fun fact about Sam here for our listeners. Her birthday is on October 13th. Now, the cool part of that is, when she turned 13, her 13th birthday party was on a Friday the 13th. Seriously, how perfect was that? You couldn't ask for anything better. And we didn't. But it's fair to say also that given your affinity for the number 13, wouldn't you say the Friday the 13th film franchise and the Jason Voorhees character are ones that you are very much into? Very much. I cheer for Jason. I totally cheer for Jason. Even Baghead Jason? Yes. Space Cyborg Jason? Especially him. Jason versus Freddy. Jason. And it's not close. So when you were deciding on a first tattoo, that's why you end up thinking, Jason. Yes. And now it's there, right on my shoulder. Big old Jason head. And it's awesome. Oh, yeah. I want to give a big shout out to Bronwyn at Deuce Tattoos in Bancroft, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Deuce is a super cool, super chill place. And Bronwyn does such a great job. I was a bit scared going in, but she made it awesome. And it was an incredible experience. There's a picture of it on our Instagram, and Bronwyn's art account is tagged in that post, so definitely check out her work, and next time you're going to be in Bancroft, definitely book a tattoo with her. But book early. Like, way in advance. Oh yeah, that's true. 
feel like our European and American listeners might not get to Bancroft soon, though. Well, all the more reason for them to check the Insta. Then let's tell them how. We have so many socials. Tell them, Sam. You can find us on the Facebook. I love old movies, the podcast. Or maybe you'd prefer to look us up on the Instagram. I love old movies, the podcast. Or just send us a good old-fashioned email. We love those. I love old movies, the podcast, at gmail.com. All one word. And while you're here checking this podcast out, be sure to take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share. It would be cool if you did that, and we'd appreciate it a lot. I mean, you're already cool for being here and listening. Oh, yeah. But, like, double cool. Totally. Like Lee Marvin in The Dirty Dozen Cool. Oh, yeah. That's what I call cool. Okay, so today we're wrapping up our all-horror October, and it's been a blast. Oh, yeah. We started off with an episode with some great guests. Then we looked at Werewolf of London and then The Mummy. And previously, back in August, we did a special two-part episode on Frankenstein films. So I feel like with having done episodes on Frankie, The Mummy, and Wolfie, there's something missing. I know what you mean. It's a bit egregious that we haven't touched on Dracula yet. A bit. Well, I should say so. And that's why today we are taking a look at 1936's Dracula's Daughter. And let's see if it's the sort of film that you can sink your teeth into. No. Or if it's the sort of movie that leaves you feeling a bit drained. Why do you do this? Do what? Our director is Lambert Hillier. Born into a show business family, Hillier was an actor in vaudeville and stock theater before getting into film in 1917. As a director, and even a screenwriter at times, he worked on numerous westerns during the silent era, working with actors such as William S. Hart, Buck Jones, Tom Mix, and more. Hillier had a very prolific career, working on films such as Dracula's Daughter in 1936, The Invisible Ray, also in 1936, and he even directed the 15-part serial Batman in 1943, which was the very first depiction of Batman on screen. In the 1930s and early 40s, Hillier transitioned over to Columbia Pictures, where he directed many B-films. Hillier finished off his career in television and directed episodes of shows such as The Cisco Kid and Highway Patrol. He died in 1969 at the age of 75. The writer is Garrett Fort. As an American short story writer... Fort also worked as a playwright and made his debut as a screenwriter in 1917 with the silent film, One of the Finest. First talkie Fort worked on was the Ruben Mamoulian production of Applause in 1929, which was recognized as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the National Film Registry in 2006. As a screenwriter, Fort's career is littered with memorable movies such as Dracula from 1931, Frankenstein, 1931, Dracula's Daughter from 1936, and The Mark of Zorro in 1941. Fort died in 1945 at the age of 45. Countess Maria Zaleska, our exotically named title character, was played by Gloria Holden. Holden was an experienced stage actress who began to work in films in the 1930s, and her film career is curious in that it sort of splits into two parts. Her performances in B-films, where she was a leading lady, and larger budget studio films, where she was a bit or a supporting player. The two films she is best known for, 
Dracula's Daughter, and The Life of Emile Zola both came out early in her two-decade film career, and a high degree of stardom or acclaim did not follow. Her resume is filled with the names of movies the casual film viewer would never have heard of in all likelihood, and her last appearance in 1958's Anti-Mame was uncredited. Holden passed away in 1991. I'm a bit surprised she didn't become a bigger deal. But Hollywood is always pretty crowded at the top. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there were enough actresses with similar features to her, physical features, I mean, that were also better performers and had the A-film market lined up. Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, people like that. And it's tough to break out of B-films when that's what you're really known for. She wasn't too interested in being in this film, was she? No. Like a lot of actors, she was quite concerned about being typecast into the horror genre, which she felt was beneath her. She had seen what it had done to Bella Lugosi's career, and she didn't want to follow that path. Ironically, it worked out for her, though. The Countess is a deeply self-loathing character, and Holden's disdain for the role, basically clearly visible on screen, actually worked in the context of the character she was playing. So she hated playing a character that hated herself. That's pretty meta. You gotta take your art where you find it, I guess. You're telling me something interesting about her and William Holden. Right, right. Well, for starters, William Holden is a stage name. His birth name was Bill Beadle. And, well, right after he had signed on to appear in his debut film, Golden Boy, which, you know what, I saw that the other night. I really enjoyed it. Um, he was given his new screen name, William Holden. Now, as the story goes, he was given this name by the talent scout who discovered him, a man named Harold Winston. Winston had been married to Gloria Holden, and even after they divorced, he still carried a major torch for her. So when renaming Bill Beadle, he did so in honor of his still-beloved ex-wife, Gloria Holden. That's funny. Wait, was Gloria Holden actually her name, or was it a stage name too? No, it was all hers. Awesome. The other actor we're going to discuss is Edward Van Sloan, a universal contract player who transitioned a very successful stage career into a 20-year film career in a variety of films and serials. Probably best known for his heroic roles, opposing the monsters in several universal horror films of the 30s. After playing Dr. Van Helsing in the Broadway production of Dracula, Van Sloan was signed to be in the Todd Browning film version. He followed that up by appearing in Frankenstein. He's the guy who pops out at the beginning of the film and tells you that you can leave if you'll be too scared. And also the first version of The Mummy. Again, as the intrepid hero, even though that time he is an occultist, as opposed to being a man of science. He reprised his role as Van Helsing in Dracula's Daughter, helping directly connect the events of Dracula to this years later sequel. Even though his on-screen career started at roughly the same time as Gloria Holden's, Dracula's Daughter was his 45th film appearance. Oh, wow. So he was super busy. Super busy. Between 1930 and 1950, he appeared in 90 films. Oh. Mostly in bit and supporting roles, but across many genres, including horror, war, westerns, crime, and was even in a few episodes of the Captain America serial from 1944. Are those considered part of the MCU? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's what Steve is up to after he went back in time at the end of Endgame. I think a Captain America film set in the late 40s, early 50s, connected to the Red Scare and the Cold War and McCarthyism, that would make an excellent film. 
early to mid 50s get the birth of rock and roll in there oh yeah yeah oh man like a reverse back to the future oh i could get behind that an incredible number of van sloan's roles are listed as uncredited if you look at his imdb page you will see uncredited 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 and this includes three of his last four roles before he retired in 1950 then passing away in 1964 I guess they paid the bills just as well? Somehow don't think Edward Van Sloan was up the top of the Hollywood pay grid. If you ask the writers at the time, they would tell you that Dracula's Daughter was based on a deleted chapter from the original Bram Stoker Dracula novel. But certainly the finished film bore little resemblance to that source material. A rushed production, with only half a script available when filming began, was the result of not wanting to lose the rights of the property to Metro-Golden-Mare. David O. Selznick was ready to poach the Dracula franchise right out from under Universal's nose, so they had to make this film or risk losing the rights. That almost never results in good films. That is true. Fantastic Four, I'm looking at you. This might not have been so dire. It was originally announced that Bela Lugosi would be appearing in the film in flashback sequences, but this changed when the plan was to have James Whale direct and Boris Karloff appear. But Whale was not eager to direct another horror film, having already done Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. So, eventually he was replaced by A. Edward Sullivan, a comedy director, best known for comedy films, and he had little interest in directing Dracula's Daughter. film no one wants to direct, being made only for the purpose of securing rights. This is shaping up great. And obviously, neither Lugosi nor Karloff are in this film. Nope. And this led to Lambert Hill, you're coming on to direct. But the really interesting story here is how Whale got off the hook. Whale wanted to make a film called Showboat with Irene Dunn. But he was concerned that if he got stuck making Dracula's Daughter, Dunn would move on to another project, and their availability might not intersect again. Whale was currently just waiting for Dunn to finish her current film, then Showboat could begin. There's a but coming. The first person hired to write a script for Dracula's Daughter was R.C. Sheriff. Sheriff had written a script, but it was rejected by the Production Code Administration for its excesses. He submitted a second script, which was again rejected, and a third, and all of this took time. And Sheriff's scripts, rather than getting more acceptable to the PCA, actually seemed to be getting worse. James Whale's biographer, James Curtis, alleged that Whale cajoled Sheriff to keep submitting scripts that couldn't possibly be used, with the hope of him being able to leave the production. Okay, that was crafty. Did the eventual film wind up being well-received? Critics at the time didn't hate it, and even today this is a film that critics have some praise and respect for. But it didn't do particularly well at the box office. If not for the eventual success of Son of Frankenstein, the universal horror film franchise might have died with Dracula's Daughter. And of course, this is the movie that really introduced homoeroticism into the film vampire canon, introducing elements from the 19th century lesbian vampire novel Carmilla and eventually inspiring writers such as Anne Rice. Yep. And some of that is in no small part what was holding up the script approval. Universal knew what they were up to, though, and the homoerotic elements of the film have not only been studied and written about for 80 years, but were even part of the marketing of the film upon its release, with its salacious tagline, Who will protect the women of London from Dracula's daughter? 
And this is also the film that really introduced the concept of the reluctant vampire, one who attempts to reject the bloodlust and longs to be human. This is an aspect of vampire fiction that has been mined heavily over the years. There's going to be a lot to unpack, I think. Let's take a look at it and see what we come up with. Oh yeah, let's go. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? We have a 6.4 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. The audience scores 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoa, 42? And the tomato meter is 61%. Film won no awards. And for this one, you're going to have to head over to a secondhand DVD store. Okay. We open with the old Universal logo of the plane flying around the globe. I love that. And we get a title card and some scary music and a montage of drawings? Paintings? What are they? A church? A crypt? They all seem like close-ups of larger images, and they're tough to decipher. Two policemen are walking down cobweb-filled stairs. Oh, wow. Is this Carfax Abbey? It sure is. And they find a dead man, which leads to the ridiculous line of, Oh! Once their wits have recovered, we learn that the dead man is Renfield. Professor Van Helsing then comes out and says there is another dead body. Oh! Why are the police such comedy relief characters? We haven't had enough tension yet for there to be a need to relieve it. Deep in the crypt, we see Dracula, actually a wax statue of Bela Lugosi, in the coffin, staked. So we're picking up right where the 1931 Dracula left off. That's very cool. Van Helsing is taken to a police inspector for an interview. How can he face a jury with a wild story like this? All anyone knows is that he's murdered some European petty nobleman who had been a hit with the ladies. We get a bit of audience info here, recapping the original movie and explaining what vampires are. It's important to remember that at this time, in the mid-30s, a lot of casual filmgoers might not have known anything about movie vampires and their lore. Much like in Werewolf of London, except Dracula was a known story. There was a novel, and the long-running play, and Nosferatu, but I agree. The idea of vampiric lore being something you could just expect that everyone knows, like they do today, that just wasn't a thing back then. Dracula and Renfield's bodies are being stored in the local jail. Um, why is that exactly? Mm -hmm. What police force keeps the bodies of murder victims in a jail cell with a dirt floor? Well, investigative methods back then were quite different. PSI, London, 1936. <laughs> and then there were some rats. Or something equally weird. They begin showing up to keep the bodies company. And this spooks the policeman. Now the braver of the two policemen leaves, and the ooh guy from earlier is left behind. To guard dead bodies locked in a jail cell. A mysterious woman shows up, saying that she wants to make sure Dracula is dead. She's cloaked and veiled, and she has a hypnosis ring, and she uses that to screw up the constable's head. The cops in this movie are just excellent. And later, when Scotland Yard arrives to look in the cell, Dracula is gone, and we hear a wolf howl. Werewolf of London? Is that you? Countess Maria, the woman, burns Dracula's corpse and salts it. And she holds a crucifix and she blesses the corpse. Wow. 
how did she do that? I don't know. She hopes that she will be free forever to live as a woman among the living. Her assistant Sandor isn't as sure. But Maria can play music again. She's filled with hopefulness, yet Sandor is a real downer, raining on her parade with talk of shadows, evil, wolves, bats, you know, the cheery stuff. He's the worst servant ever. She asks him, what do you see in my eyes? And he replies, death. So it's off to the streets of London to find a snack. One well-dressed gentleman and a hypnosis ring later, her belly full, she returns home to hop into her coffin before dawn. We later see the gentleman in an operating theater surrounded by doctors. One doctor is truly puzzled. If only we knew what caused those two sharp punctures above his jugular vein. Cut to a hut camp in the country. Psychiatrist Jeffrey Garth is being summoned back to London to help Van Helsing. The plan is to convince the jury that Van Helsing is sane, despite his nutbar trial defense that you can't kill someone who's been dead for five centuries. At a fancy party, Countess Maria shows up. Garth notices her and is a bit... taken. She's offered a sherry, but declines, saying, I never drink wine. Oh, got her father's knack for the bon mot, I see. <laughs> and why are there never parties like this anymore? People just hanging out in tuxedos and ball gowns, discussing things like vampires and how Dracula's body is missing. Maria plays along with all of this, even trolling a bit. Garth thinks that vampirism is a condition of the mind, and that treatment can release the mind from any obsession. Now, Maria loves the sound of this, and she wants a private session. She was hoping Dracula's death would release her from the vampiric curse, but it didn't. And neither did destroying his body. But some therapy... Good for depression. Mm -hmm. Good for anxiety. Yep. Good for vampirism. Oh, yeah. Now, Garth's assistant, Jenny, she's funny and intrepid and plucky and also worried about him. She thinks Maria might be bad news. It's an intuition thing. And also, she's totally into Garth. Oh, yeah, they've got that adorable bickering thing going on. Garth visits Maria's place and notices there are no mirrors. She brings up that vampires don't like mirrors. Just completely nonchalantly. Why does she keep doing that? She's such a troll. And then Janet literally prank calls Garth at Maria's. Oh, she's awesome. He's not as impressed. Maria explains that she's being controlled from a darkness from beyond the grave. Garth pish-poshes this and says that with a willing mind, she can be released. There's a fair bit of comedy in this. Like, it's funny. The phone bit? That was good. That was well-timed comedy relief. The police at the beginning, no. But this was good. After Garth leaves, Sandor takes to the streets. He finds a lonely young girl named Lily and brings her to pose for his artist mistress. And this brings us to the famous Lily scene, in which the lesbian undertones of Maria's character are put right on full display for the audience. It's very intense and erotic and brief. Next day, back at the hospital, Garth is brought to see a patient who is suffering from blood loss and amnesia. And also, it's Lily. He decides it's not amnesia. Oh, and she has marks on her neck. This leads him to go see Van Helsing. And he is confused by this, as no vampire can survive the stake. So if it's not Dracula, who is doing this? He mentions that a vampire needs to have a coffin and dirt and no mirrors 
And Garth is like, oh, snap. And he starts piecing the mystery together. Maria still wants Garth's help. She believes his methods might be the cure to her affliction. She plans to leave London soon. Garth has a hypnosis machine he wants to use on her, but she wants him to come with her back to Hungary. He knows she's hiding details, but is summoned to see Lily again as she has just revived. And while he is gone, Maria and Sandor abduct Janet. Whoops. Not so much with the crank calls now, huh, Janet? Garth hypnotizes Lily, and she's talking about posing and a ring and a studio in Chelsea, and then she dies. And this leads Garth to track Maria to her studio, and he calls the inspector and Van Helsing to meet him there. There's a funny scene with the inspector and his butler. The inspector asks for his gun since he is hunting for a vampire, and his butler says, Vampires? I thought you only went after those with your checkbook. Now that's a zinger. (laughs) We get a montage of the search to find Janet. We see radio broadcasts. Wait, when is this happening again? Phones with direct dialing and radio broadcasts. What's the timeline here? Seems like it must be present to when it was filmed. Was Dracula like that? Maria flees to Transylvania and Garth charters a plane to follow her. In Transylvania, there's a party in the village and a wolf howls. And Maria is in her castle and everyone thinks Dracula has returned. Now Maria has left Janet unharmed, so she can trade her to Garth in exchange for his life. She wants him as her vampire man. Sandor does not like this, as he was wanting to be vamped, and he plans on killing Garth, who is fast approaching. Sandor does try to kill Garth, and fails, while Maria definitely had a moment of some kind with Janet. Staring at her unconscious body, leaning over her, looming with intense and unblinking eyes filled with something. Some film historians have called that scene the longest kiss never put on film. Ah, that's fair. Totally how I read it. Maria lays out the deal to Garth, and he is planning on accepting. But just as Maria goes to de-enthrall Janet... Sandor shoots her with a huge wooden arrow, which kills her as a stake through the heart would have. Sandor is then shot by a Hungarian policeman, who arrive late to the scene. And Van Helsing gets the final word, noting that, of course, she also died 100 years ago. Again with the abrupt endings to these films. Like, monster dies, the end. A lot of these films were made so cheaply, I wonder if they didn't worry about denouement so much just to save on the production costs. That would make sense. Another few minutes would mean a few more pages of script and storyboarding and another day or two on set. Yeah, it would be a saving. And it's not like Mario was getting any more dead or anything. Yeah. So should we do the pros and cons on this thing? Yeah, for sure. After you. Okay, my pros. The atmosphere and tone. This felt like a Dracula film. It was eerie in all the right spots, and we got a classic sequel that reverses the story of the original with Maria beginning in England before going back to Transylvania, and that's the opposite of Dracula's journey. There's just enough reference to the original film without being overburdened by it. While not the improvement on the original that Bride of Frankenstein is, this film hits all the right notes. Number two, Janet the Assistant. Although she is reduced to an unconscious damsel in distress in the final act, her brassiness, sassiness, sense of humor, and self-determination make Janet just a fantastic character. She's played excellently and almost steals every scene she is in. There are some characters you just never seem to get your fill of. 
and she was one of those for me. I definitely want to find some more films with this actress. And third, the Lily scene. Obviously, it's impossible to research this movie without reading a lot about this scene. Directed and acted with such great restraint, you can feel the tension between Lily and Maria. There's a sense of threat, but it's not just the threat of a vampire attack. At least not any kind of vampire attack an audience in 1936 had ever seen before, or possibly had even imagined. It's erotic, and scary, and uncomfortable. And it's a great, revolutionary moment of screen horror. My cons. The timeline issues. It's clear that the film begins very soon after Dracula ends, but what isn't clear to me is what year this is. There is technology we see in Dracula's daughter that we don't see in Dracula, like airplanes and telephones and newswire services and radio. But if one film directly follows the other, how can this be? The film must clearly be set in the late 1920s or 1930s, but how consistent is that with what we see in the original Dracula film, which does have a shot of an automobile and electric lights, but little other defining technology. I hate this kind of thing. It distracts me when I'm trying to figure out when exactly a film is set. Number two, the comedy. The opening scene at Carfax Abbey is reduced to something used to induce chuckles. Dracula's body summoning the creatures, again, this is played for laughs. Maria's first victim, the constable, played for laughs. The inspector's butler, wry humor but very telegraphed, and about half of Janet's screen time is her being funny and brassy. I was laughing out loud when she phones Garth at a party about the escaped elephants. But why is there so much comedy in a horror film? Is this a funny movie with scary bits? Or a scary movie with way too many funny bits? I get that the writers might have wanted to mitigate some of the more salacious aspects of the script by burying it in corny jokes and hammy acting, but that just waters down the impact of the film. By wasting time on this stuff, the good stuff gets less time than it should, and the ending is far too abrupt and unsatisfying. Lastly, the runtime. I don't say this too often, but I feel like this film was too short. At a very brisk 71 minutes, this film is a light snack by today's standards, and there's so many scenes I wish were longer, or bits of plot that were explored more, like Janet's crush on Garth, or Van Helsing's trial for the murder of Dracula, or how Maria developed her love for Garth, and what her arrangement was with Sandor. How did that lead to his ultimate betrayal of her? There was an excellent two-hour film here, and they just didn't make it. And that's not to say I want some modern remake. I don't. I just wish there was a longer version of this film. Is this getting a watch recommendation? Oh, for sure it is. This is a really great and enjoyable film. And while I don't put it on par with Bride of Frankenstein, I do put it on par with Son of Frankenstein as a very worthy sequel that helps grow its universe and mythology. All right, over to you. Okay, my pros. One, the opening scene. I really liked how the film was starting right after Dracula. It reminded me of Son and Ghost of Frankenstein. When this happens, I find that it makes the two films fit together and brings over all of the energy from the first film into the second. So I quite enjoyed the beginning. 2. Van Helsing I thought it was really interesting that Van Helsing was actually arrested for murder. I never really thought about what would happen after he had killed Dracula in the first movie. I guess I always thought he would be celebrated as a hero or something, but that wouldn't really make sense if no one else knew that Dracula was a vampire. 
So I thought it was really cool to see this side of things with Van Helsing being arrested. Three, Janet. I loved everything about her. She gave Garth these awesome and angry looks, messed with his tie, and straight up prank called him. <laughs> she was absolutely hilarious and definitely my favorite character. My cons. One, no one caring about death. What is up with everyone? The biggest reaction we got from the police at the beginning finding a dead body was, oh. The only reaction we got when Lily died was, she's dead. Nobody was ever concerned that there was a freaking dead body right in front of them. They were just acting like it was a regular occurrence for them. Two, Arya literally giving herself away. At the dinner party, she kept hinting at vampires and vampire-related things, all while she's literally talking to a psychiatrist who's friends with Van Helsing. She was totally asking to get figured out and caught in that scene. 3. Sandor He's always so grumpy and disapproving of poor Maria. She's getting so fed up with him in one scene when she was trying to be happy and think about freedom, well, he just keeps reminding her of vampires and stuff. Really funny, but also super mean. He was such a jerk to her. Like, seriously, worst servant ever. And is this film a watch for you? It definitely is. Okay. Well, that takes us to the end of another episode, and also to the end of our all-scary movie October. Right. It's been a lot of fun looking at these movies, and especially doing our Mount Rushmore show. But it is on to our next theme month. For the month of November, we are going to be looking at war movies, and we have got some good ones lined up. We will be looking at All Quiet on the Western Front, Sahara, To Hell and Back, and Hangman Also Die. Oh, I can't wait. This is going to be awesome. Be sure to check those episodes out when they hit. And since you're here anyway... Thanks for listening. And as always, if you liked what you heard, don't keep it to yourself. Absolutely not. You sharing what we do with people is the single best way for our podcast to grow, and we appreciate it so, so much. So please, tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might enjoy vampires prowling the streets of London for a meal as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from freefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs. 